0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, amen. Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Sam, for uh, taking the time to prepare the third talk on the Catholic epistles that we've been having, uh, so far the talks have been really good with Irene last week, uh, that was a great talk, and tonight we're covering the second epistle of St. Peter, and I uh, look forward to it with that, Sam, please uh, take it over.
1: Thank you, Abuna. So like Abuna said, uh, with the grace of God, we'll be talking about the second epistle of St. Peter. So unlike the first epistle where scholars basically unanimously agreed it was written by St. Peter, this one ran into some doubts, particularly by more recent scholars. So they doubted the, the authorship, but not the authenticity. They knew it was read, it's an authentic, but who wrote it was a little bit of a doubt simply because the content and the style was, were fairly different from the first epistle. This is more on the recent times, although are the authenticity and the author, authorship were accepted by the early church, Eusebius, St. Clement of Alexandria, St. Clement of Rome, St. Jerome, and others quoted it. Um, today, this was established that it is written by St. Paul, uh, sorry, by St. Peter. And a part of the doubt was um, from the readings that I did recently, uh, St. Peter, it was not a, uh, very fluent in Greek. So he got some help in translating into Greek and from the translations themselves that end up having a different style. But the, um, there is this personal way of, of his writing that we'll talk about in the next few minutes that also adds to the authenticity and making sure it was written by St. Peter. Also the, the author himself or the writer himself said that I am Peter in multiple occasions. So first verse, he calls himself Simon Peter, one servant and apostle. And later on, he reminds us that command of us, the apostles, that he was one of the apostles. And in the same chapter, he talks about the resurrection, the transfiguration, and he says that we heard his voice We were with him on the holy mountain, and we only know that there were only three of them. Uh, We have St. Peter, St. John, St. James. These are the only three that were there. So he said we were there. And he also, on on the opening verse of the third chapter, he says, I now write to you this second epistle, referring to a first one that was written earlier. So why did he write it? He wrote it out of his care. In his last day, St. Peter wrote this second letter. And we'll quote him saying that in the next slide. So why did he write it? He wrote it to encourage the faithful in general. It was not written to a particular group of people like typically the... Um, this is like the, the Catholic apostles are usually written to the general church, general faithful, unlike the... Um, letters of saint paul they were written to particular people or particular churches so he's encouraged them to grow in their faith he's warning them against their false teaching and there are a couple of them we're going to talk about and he's reminding them to stay focused on the kingdom of heaven and the second coming of christ so when was it written it was written between um, the late, later days of his life and how we, do we know that he said knowing that shortly i must put off my tent that's talking about his body right here just as our lord jesus christ showed me so the lord jesus christ told him that he will be departing this body soon and that's why he wrote it and the three chapters follow the same exact um, flow as we talked in the previous slide basically the first one is growing your faith. Be careful of false teachers. And remember, keep your eye on the prize. Christ is coming, the second coming of Christ. And this follows, in a way, the theme of the first epistle. The first theme of the first epistle that we learned last week was salvation comes with suffering. We're talking about suffering, the that can, that can come with suffering. So this is a little bit Different, but it follows the same the same theme like suffering, grow in the faith, keep the faith pure, and then Christ is coming. Okay. He typically starts the first chapter with a greeting. He reminds us of God's great gifts for us, and then what are we supposed to do with these gifts? And then remember that the eternal kingdom is true. So notice, he says, this is the first verse Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's written to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. So notice that it's not addressed, it's addressed to the faithful in general. It is not addressed to the pilgrims as it was in the first epistle. As we know, the first epistle talked about suffering. So it was good to remind them that you guys are pilgrims as we found last time. And it's interesting to see how he put this from the first verse right away. He's talking about the faith as something precious. And indeed, of course, it is precious. And of course us, like the Copts know very well the price, that that was paid over 2000 years, and actually it's still being paid till today for that faith to come to us. He also uses that term like faith. Why is he using that? Remember at that time, most of these people that this letter was written to were pagans. So some of them received the faith before others, some received them later than others. So he's basically telling people that those who received the faith later, He's telling them, your faith is by no means inferior to those who received it before you, nor even to us, the apostles, or the faithful in general. So, and this is the encouragement and the personal style that we see a lot of examples like this throughout the apostle, showing St. Peter encouraging people, being very personal in his message. One of the reasons that was quoted to attribute this letter to him. So what is St. Peter doing here? He's basically building the case. So what is the case that he's building? You have faith. Your faith is precious. You gotta keep it. You've got to grow it. You're gonna maintain it pure. That's when he talks about the false apostle, the false, uh, false teachings. Persevere till the end and then Christ is coming. So this is the story that St. Peter is building this letter upon. From first of all, you've got the faith, keep your faith, grow your faith keep your faith pure, persevere, and then the second coming. We notice at the second verse, it says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. This is, that's an interesting, very interesting. First of all, why we're typically talking about peace in the greeting, we did not invent that. This came from us, we learned that from Christ. Jesus taught us, like, and he did that even when he sent his, uh, his apostles, peace be upon you. And in the church, we see that very often, like in the prayer of uh, abuna's uh, greeting is always what? Peace be with you, Irini Pasi. In the prayer of reconciliation, according to your good will, O God, fill our hearts with your peace. And the part that I personally find really amazing is after the commemoration of the saints, when I want to praise those, O Lord, whose souls you have taken, repose them in the paradise of joy in the region of the living forever, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in your place. So the departed, we're praying that God will repose them in the paradise of joy. Now, what about us? And we, too, who are sojourner in this place, keep us in your faith and grant us your peace to the end. So keep us in your faith and grant us your peace. So the prayer is for both together. Keep us in the faith and grant us your peace. And Saint Serafim of Sarov, he has a beautiful quote here. He is a, from the Russian Orthodox Church. He departed in, um, I think early 19th century. He said, acquire a peaceful spirit and then thousands of others around you will be saved. That peace. What is Saint Seraphim's basically saying here? He's also linking having the peace with being saved, not only for you, but for people around you. If you have a truly peaceful spirit, thousands around you will be saved because of your peaceful spirit. What is he basically saying here? He's telling, I think this, is, this statement is just a modern way of telling the story of St. Anthony. Remember the story of St. Anthony? When three monks, or the um, yeah, story says the three brothers went visited him, two of them were asking questions, one after the other, one after the other, but the third one was just sitting there listening and looking at St. Anthony. And then toward the end, St. Anthony's turned toward the brother who's not who's been silent all along around in his head. What about you? I mean, do you have any questions? And he, the brother, basically said, "It's enough for me to look at your face." A beautiful statement. So holy people like him can impact people just by the way they look. When people see their peace, where people see their humility, where people see their knowledge, just he didn't need to ask him any questions. He just looked at him, and he learned. So that is the factor of what. Saint Serafim is telling us here. If you are peaceful, that peace is contagious. Other people will be peaceful and other people will be saved because of, because of your peace. Saint John Chrysostom, tells us that the peace is the foundation of our joy. Actually the complete quote is the peace is the mother of all good things and the foundation of joy. This is the full quote of Saint John Chrysostom. The foundation, the mother of all good things is the peace. One of the really interesting stories in the Bible is the story of St. Peter on the eve of his execution. So uh, this is definitely the ultimate example of peace. So he was in prison. He was supposed to be executed the second day. And that's, see what the Acts said. When Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping. First of all, who would sleep on the eve of his execution? I mean, what kind of peace is that? Somebody's going to die next day. He's sleeping. And then God sent him an angel. So And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone on the prison. So even the light did not wake him up. And to wake him up, the angel had to strike him. Strike him on the side, and the and he struck him here, as the angel struck Peter on the side, and raised him, saying, "Arise quickly!" And his chains fell off his hands. And actually, when we read the following few verses, also there was not enough room to put them, we find out that po- that Saint Peter was not totally awake. Like he got totally awake when he got out in the street and felt the cold, the cold air. That's when he really woke up, and he realized that this actually happened. Um, Saint Luke, in in that on that account, tells us that. He was, he, up to that point, he felt that he was still dreaming. So that's somebody, like not any personality, like somebody is like, he had the most fiery personalities in the, uh, in all the disciples. He's the one who, like really said last time, he basically exploded when uh, Christ told him that you guys are gonna, you're gonna abandon me. And he totally did not like that. He's the one who jumped the defense of cry of Jesus and cut off the right ear of the high priest servant. He's the one who jumped into answering the question, who do you say I am? He said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. So he's just this, this fiery personality. To have this calm to a point where he's, leave, he's sleeping on the eve of his acu- execution and really deep sleep, it's something amazing. So how did he or how do we get this? And he gives us the recipe right away. He said, Peace and grace be multiplied to you by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. To acquire personal knowledge is our condition or what you might say a prerequisite to acquire peace and grace. So what is the knowledge of God? Knowing God on a personal level, not just at at the intellectual knowledge of God. You're not expected to know, I mean, by the grace of God, all of us believe in God. All of us know that Christ is um, that Christ is God. I mean, and that's why we're here together. That's why we meet every Sunday at church. But God expects a little bit more from us. God expects a personal relationship. God wants a relationship, a full relationship, not just the obedience of a servant. Meaning, let's look at this beautiful icon of Christ, this is in the Louvre, and they call it Christ the true friend. Christ has his hand on the shoulder of Avamina in the picture. He is Christ, he is Avamina, and he has his hand on his on his shoulder, the true friend. So God wants a true relationship. He does not want this obedience of a obedient of obedience of a servant. And our example here is the older son in the in the parable of the prodigal son. He was obedient. But his heart was not with his father. He even told his father that I never transgressed against your commandment at any time. But still, that was not good enough because we find out that he was there for something. He needed something out of it. And St. Gregory the Theologian beautifully puts it, and we pray it in the Gregorian liturgy: "You gave me the learning of your knowledge." So, gave me, not gave us. You know, some prayers in the liturgy are communal some of them are me but this is one of them me personally got to know so that knowledge of god on a personal level is critical to, to acquire this peace. and on the same theme of knowledge of god is that beautiful account of christ when he called his first apostles in the first um, first chapter of the gospel according to saint john then Christ turned, so two disciples of Saint, what was going on here? Two disciples of St. John the Baptist, Andrew and John, were with St. John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Christ going and he said, here is the Lamb of God. He pointed to them, this is the Messiah, basically. So they followed him. And then Jesus turned and see them following, said to them, what do you seek? It's a beautiful question. He said to them, and they're, they're, I mean, this exchange is really, really nice. And they said, Rabbi, where do you, where are you staying? So it's not like, um, where is your house? What, what, what they are effectively telling him: We want to know you a little bit more. We need to know you a little. We'd like to know you. And Christ loved that answer. Christ totally loved it. What did he tell him? himself? Come and see. He did not tell them, just um, just go to down the street and then uh, make right and I'll be on the third house on the left. No, nothing like that. Come and see. Basically, he invited them to come and see for themselves, have a personal experience. And that meeting, they spent the whole day with him. That meeting was, the impact of it was so profound that like St. Andrew invited his brother Peter Simon. And he told him, we found the Messiah. You've got to come and see him. You've got to come and see him. We we found him. And St. John, when he wrote this gospel, he wrote, they came and saw he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. St. John tells us that they met Christ at 4 o'clock, the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Remember that the gospel of St. John was written toward the late 90s. So more than 60 years after this meeting, this meeting was around 30, like Christ was around 30 at that time, who would remember when he met someone for the first time, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. See that huge impact of the personal meeting. It is that personal meeting with him so, it was so impactful. I mean, they already know that he's Christ. John the Baptist and John the Baptist told them that this is the Lamb of God. But this huge impact came when they personally met and spent time with him. So what are we saying here? Acquire peace. How do we acquire peace? Through knowing God at a personal level. St. Peter then turns around and starts talking about, reminding him of the great gifts that God gives them. He's telling him his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So first, Key word here is, he called us. And then he gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So basically he gave us anything we need to live this godly life. He gave us, he died on our behalf, he gave us the scriptures, the commandments, the mysteries, he gave us part of there, he gave us everything. What St. Peter is effectively telling us, we have no excuse. What else do you expect from God beyond what he has already given us? So what is this calling for to unite with him? The goal of a Christian life is to be united with Christ, is to be Christ-like. It's not only to be kind and nice, of course you have to be kind and nice and polite and honest and everything, but the goal is to be like Christ. So what is our role here? We We just have to respond to that. He gave us everything and we have to respond to that. So, God elevated, God made us, or he will make us partakers of his divine nature. But before we go there, let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about some background on that. When God created man, he created man in his image according to his likeness, as Genesis says. Like man, man was created, man, when you make, say man, we're using the language of the Bible, what man is like meaning human. When God created man, God created humans, Man was, was created to live and not to die. And they had dominion, dominion, Adam and Eve had dominion over every living thing that moves on earth. I mean, Adam and Eve lived in total happiness, in like in perpetual bliss. They never got sick. They never got tired. They never got angry. They never got upset. Nothing negative, nothing bad ever encountered by them. But then after the fall, all humans became corrupt and death reigned. And Saint Athanasius in his famous book on the incarnation uses that term, and death death reigned. So what happened here, the the nature itself got corrupted. I mean, death entered into the world, um, diseases, sicknesses, storms, all of these things entered into the world. But God did not want people to live forever in such a state of corruption, and from Genesis we say, now lest he, like that's man, put out his hand and take also the tree of and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. So out of God's mercy, he did not want man to live in this fallen state forever. That's what he said here. I did not want him to live forever. So he placed a cherubim. He, t- he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. He placed a cherubim with a the flaming sword to guard the tree of life so they would not eat from it and live forever in this fallen state. So actually asking them to leave or driving them out of the garden was an act of of love and mercy. It was not a punishment. Remember the punishment came before that, like a few verses before that, the the punishment was already bestowed on them, like Eve, uh, before before this verse comes in the uh, In Genesis, we read that I will greatly multiply your sorrows and your your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and Adam, and so on and so forth. And Adam, in toil you shall eat of it, of, of the ground that is. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So now, people, like man, has fallen, and he was sentenced to death. So what did God do about that? God took it upon himself to resolve this design, divine dilemma as Saint Athanasius calls it. What is this divine dilemma? Basically the question is God told Adam that you're going to die if you eat from this tree and they ate. So should God go back on his word and forgive man which obviously is not is not right. Like how can God go back on his word? And On the other hand, he can let God, man die, he can let this humans perish and that's not what he intends that's not in accordance of what his will and his plan and his love for man. So this is the divine dilemma. So God took it upon himself to resolve this problem. And St. in the same book toward the end, he, he explicitly tells us God became man so that man might become God. Of course, God is man is not going to become God in that context of being a creator and, and that stuff. And that same same um, concept was addressed by uh, by St. Peter and he says, God gave us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you may be partakers of the human nature. Partaker, what is the partakers of human nature? What do we mean by that? St. Ambrose of Milan tells us, God granted us a relationship with himself and have a rational nature which makes us able to seek what is divine what does that mean basically being partakers of divine natures is uniting with god in divine nature and aiming and yearning for what is good and what is divine we are not we're not going to be gods in the in the sense of create of being creators no we're going to be gods in the sense of we yearn will have yearn to what is godly and what is divine And how do we do that? Step number one, having escaped the corruption that is in this world. So the first step is do not engage in the corruption of this world. And St. Peter is going to come to that point later. So what happened up to this point? Christ died on the cross on our behalf. He gave us faith. He called us to glory and virtue, and he gave us divine capabilities of life and godliness. And now the question is, so what is still missing for us to be saved? I mean, what else can God do? Now it's our role. So what is still missing is our acceptance of his salvific plan and our participation in carrying the cross. What does acceptance of God's plan of salvation mean? It mean we have to follow, we have to choose God. We have to choose Christ. And we know it for a fact. We either choose God or choose Christ or choose the world. I mean, there are there are two ways. There is no third way. There is the way of life and there is the way of death. There is no third way. So Christ is telling us, or not Christ, the church is teaching us and Christ telling us we have to accept God's plan for our salvation. God will not force his salvation upon us. We have to participate in that and we have to carry our crosses. So... St. Peter is giving us a recipe on how we should grow our faith. So basically, saying add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge, self control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And notice we have to add something to our faith. Like our faith is not something that is stagnant, like I have faith and I'm going to sit on it. No, we have to add something to the faith. And Abouna nicely puts it said, St. Peter is asking us to add virtue to our faith, that our faith is not dead. As we know, like spiritual life is sometimes likened to climbing a mountain. The general direction should be upward. So sometimes the direction is clearly upward. Sometimes you go on a flat area. Sometimes you've got some obstacles or rocks or something that we have to manage to get around. But in general, the direction should be upward. St. Pisces or Pishoi, he's a monk in Mount Athos. He departed in the 90s and he, he was recently canonized into the Eastern Orthodox Church maybe, say, a few years ago. He tells us that the goal of a spiritual life is not just to avoid sin, but rather to grow spiritually. The goal is to rise spiritually not to just avoid sin if we wait till we stop sinning in in order to start working on growing the faith and on acquiring virtues we will never we will never start we will always sin so we should start for star should strive or should start the journey to holiness right away And he also so puts it nicely, he said, the desire and effort must come from you. You have to provide the desire and the effort. And then God will provide you the strength and the power and we will provide the results. So there is a role on us. If we have no desire, if we do not put any effort, then God is not going to force us into that. But if we, if we do our part, God will faithfully, of course, do his part and provide power and results. The church fathers tell us that when Peter talks about virtue here, like when you say, add to your faith virtue, he does not mean the power to perform miracles, but rather he's talking about the strength to lead a good life. I have to strive. I have to try to lead a good life, which means putting our faith into practice. So what are they telling us basically? telling us that on the day of judgment, God is not gonna come and ask us, why didn't we perform miracles? Why didn't we perform wonders? But he will ask us, Why didn't we struggle to the best of our effort? That's what's expected from us. It's not expected that we will raise the dead or we'll perform miracles. If that happens by the grace of God, be it. But the bar is set for us to do our best, to strive to the best of our abilities. So now that we're struggling, we're trying to increase the faith and add virtues to our faith, St. Peter is reminding us to stay the course. So he's telling us, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. The word, the key word here is diligently. We have to diligently try that. And he's saying, make sure you stay the course. Make sure you struggle to the end. And we know for a fact that the race is won at the end. The race is not won at the at the beginning. The race is won at the end. And St. Peter himself has a personal experience with that. St. Peter knew, knew Judas. Judas was a disciple. Judas saw Christ. He saw Christ perform miracles. Judas himself very likely performed miracles because the Bible tells us that, that they drove out evil spirits, the disciples are about evil spirits, and he was one of them. They performed miracles. So St. Peter knows for a fact that a good beginning does not mean a victory at the end. So he's telling us, stay the course, because the race is won at the end. And just in case anybody should despair on some, um, he tells them, he reminds us that of the price. He tells us that God supplies abundantly, and the entrance is available. So What is he saying is that the kingdom of God is wide open to anyone who struggles. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. The doors are wide open for he is generous and gives abundantly. So basically stay the course. One of the priests that I love to read for is father Seraphim Rose, he's a monk. He lived here in California, Northern California, the Russian Orthodox Church. Look at these strong words when he said, only struggle a little bit more. Carry your cross without complaining. Don't think you're anything special. Don't justify your sins and weaknesses. See yourself as you really are and especially love one another. That's it's, it's beautiful. Struggle just a little bit more. Do your best. Like If this is your best, just increase it a little bit more carry your cross without complaining. And in a lot of his letters, a lot of his letters, he has this theme, like he covers this theme. Like one of the things, uh, when we read this, don't think yourself are anything special. He had this in one of his letters. said, if you ever begin to think your spirit, you're well off, then you can know for sure that you are not. And about carrying the cross, one of the interesting things or encouraging things that he said he wrote one of his uh, spiritual children. Through spiritual life, even at the most elementary level is always accompanied by suffering and difficulties, even at the elementary level. Therefore, you should rejoice in all your difficulties and sorrows. Don't just put up with them, no, you should rejoice in them. Then Saint Peter assures them of the eternal kingdom. And notice that he this is um, said, yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, in this body, I'm still alive to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So now that I know that I will leave this body, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of those things after my disease. Look at the true servant in St. Peter, right? Christ told him that you're gonna depart this body. What was his first concern? The flock, my children. And there is a history in that. Remember when Christ asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And then he said to him, tend my sheep. Like that dialogue occurred three times with this slight variation in the word, but this happened three times. So he took that word to heart. He took Christ's word to heart. Tend my sheep. So Christ comes to him and tells him, you will depart this body. What is the first thing that he does? He tends to to Christ's sheep. Writes him this letter to encourage them and tell them, keep your faith, increase your faith, watch out for heresies. Christ is coming. So the assurance, number one, He's basically telling them that you are established in the in the present path, encouragement. There is a lot of encouragement he does for these children. And he assures them that their faith is not in vain. He's reminding them that we witnessed this glory and honor during the transfiguration. I personally saw it, like we talked earlier. I saw that myself. I said even the prophets witnessed to him. So we do not believe, and actually in the... In the letter itself, he says, We don't believe in stuff that does not make sense. And no, we will, we believe in God with his glory and his coming and everything. And we witness that ourselves. And that's how he ends the first chapter. So, first chapter talks about the faith and increasing it. And at the end, he reminds them of the, the eternal kingdom is something for sure. The second chapter is dedicated toward heretics and how to avoid them. So f- from the first verse, right, I said, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So there will be false teachers. And you can totally relate to that today. Like, unfortunately we are living in a world that's getting to be godless by the day. So sinful behavior is totally accepted today. Sinful behavior actually sometimes is trendy. Like some of the trend, some of the sins are actually are considered trendy today. But why is that bad? He tells us why is that bad right away. Many will follow these destructive ways because of whom the way of the truth will be blasphemed. So why is there a problem here? The problem is a lot of people will follow these will follow these heresies. So the unrighteous ways will just become the norm. These unrighteous ways are are gonna become the norm in, in our life. And not only that, not only become accepted, but the righteous ways are being looked upon unfavorably. People are gonna be frowned upon. Like people trying to walk in the righteous way, they're gonna have trouble. They're gonna be mocked, they're gonna have trouble, they're gonna be persecuted. And then he talks about the condemnation of the heretics, which is like, we don't always talk about God's judgment or God's punishment because we, we always talk like, rightfully talk about God's mercy. Of course, no one is is more loving or more merciful or more forgiving than God. But at the same time, God as loving and merciful and forgiving, he's also just. So the evil doers will be punished and among them, Will be the heretics. And he Saint Peter clearly gets gives us three examples here. He says in like three verses right away. Remember, God did not even spare his angels. Remember, God did not spare the ancient world. He brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Like basically, he wiped, he wiped the ungodly. Only left Noah, one of eight. Like Noah and seven others were saved. And he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He condemned them by destruction, making them an example for those who afterward will live ungodly. It's a pretty awakening verse right here. These cities, this is not something that just happened in history. This is an example to those who afterward, example for those who decide to live an ungodly life in the future. Having said that, the righteous will be saved. And he tells us, God will deliver the godly out of temptations. And the interesting part is that the two examples that were given about the flood and about Sodom and Gomorrah, the righteous people were saved in both cases. So the church fathers tell us, Noah was spared because he was not led astray by the ungodliness of those who lived before the flood. And St. Clement of Rome tells us by rescuing Lot, the Lord made it clear that he does not abandon those who hope in him. So he's reminding us that actually we can, actually we should, not only we can, we should still be righteous, even when we live in a world, in an evil world. God recognizes that and he gives examples like Noah and Lot, they lived righteously in an evil world, but God recognized that and God delivered them out of them. And now that we've seen why is the uh, horses are bad, horses are dangerous, these guys are gonna go, like will not go without punishment. And the question is, how do we recognize the false teachers? How can we recognize them? And he actually lists this not list but um, this pulled out of the of the um, words of the gospel of the letter. They walk according to the flesh. They despise authority. They're ignorant, love pleasure, deceivers, love money. They bring no fruits and distort the concept of freedom. And out of these, I really think this despise authority is the most critical one. Which authority? It is the authority of the church. The first sign. Of course, all of these are signs, but the first sign that we have false teaching here is the church is telling me this is a false teaching. If the church tells me this is, a, this is the wrong teaching, it's the wrong teaching. If the church says this is the right teaching, then this is the right teaching. And why did where did the church get this authority? From Christ himself. Christ gave us this authority. And actually, we acknowledge this authority in all our prayers when we, when we prayed the creed, the creed has, we believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantocrator who created heaven and earth and so on. And then we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the life giver who proceeds from the Father. So we say we believe in the God, the Father, we believe in the only begotten Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So wh- why is the church a part of my faith? Actually, we talked about that with the high school youth um, I think maybe a couple of weeks ago, very recently, because this is really important. Why is that a part of my faith? I totally understand that I believe in um, God the Father. I believe in the only begotten Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But then in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, simply because this, this is the church that is responsible for preserving that faith, for keeping that faith. The church, like I said, got this authority from Christ and, and the church will keep this faith, like church, we know from the book of Acts that the apostles received the faith from Christ. And this one holy Catholic and apostolic church is responsible for preserving it till the second coming. God willing, when Christ comes in his second coming, We will find that faith pure, the same way he gave it to the apostles. But which church is that? It's the one holy Catholic and apostolic. These are the signs or these are the characteristics of the church that is keeping the faith. So if God forbid, God forbid, we're sitting and somebody would say, maybe we should revisit Arius. Are we sure he was wrong? who would tell us who would correct this right away the church will the church come and say no this is a hersey here this is the, the wrong teaching here is the right teaching so this despising of authority is a clear or i think in my book the clearest message that we've got a false teacher right there somebody who is not putting himself under the authority of the church the Holy One, Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Chapter three, as we said, focuses on the Second Coming. So he's encouraging them, telling them, "Okay, Christ is going to come. There is a Second Coming of Christ." Why did you have to bring that? Because at that time, there were two heresies that were, uh, among others, one heresy said that oh, that Second Coming is not going to happen. Another heresy saying that. You can actually live according to the flesh. It doesn't matter what sins of the body are, as long as your spirit is in the right place. If you're following the, if you're like, if your heart is in the right place, if you love God, if you believe in God, you will still be saved, no matter what your body does. Of course, this is—we don't need to discuss. This is an utter, uh, I mean, utter nonsense, actually. One more thing is that they denied the coming of Christ, and He tells them that. He tells them. Scophers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they tell you, who said there will be a second coming? There will be no second coming. Because why is that? Because since the beginning of creation, nothing has changed, things have, have been the same. So St. Peter brings up three really smart points right here so we first said first of all remember things have changed god created the world by his word the heavens were formed remember that also god destroyed everything on earth and he said everything on earth was that was the, everything on earth was destructed at one point point. and actually this is an oversimplification of what's going to happen to the ungodly On Judgment Day, so he's telling them that first that statement that nothing has happened is wrong. It's factually wrong. Why? Because God does not. God has the authority and the power, and He's shown His authority and His power to destroy those on Earth if they do not follow the teaching. And the second thing and the second point he brings is telling them, do not forget one thing that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So God basically does not submit to our concept of time. Like when they come here and say things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, he said, God has different criteria, like different time. It's not it's not that. It's taken so many years and it's just not going to happen. God's concept of time is different than ours. God lives, existed from, the, like, it, like, God would live in eternal God created yeah, from even the beginning, before the beginning of time. So he does not submit to this concept of time that we have. And the third point, which is really important, said God is long suffering. So the church tells us that in his father, he loved his kindness and his clemency God does not punish immediately so that you may recognize the extent of his loving regard for you out of his compassion like God could strike right now like but he'd rather wait for you to repent rather than punish you in your sin so do not abuse God's long suffering God is patient with you please do not abuse that that's what He's telling them. Do not abuse or do not say that God is incapable just because He's no, He is, but He's giving you a chance to repent. So the last point we're gonna to discuss today now. What is our duty toward this second coming? And St. Peter beautifully puts it in four verses in a row. First one, we have to live our life with holy conduct and godliness. That's what we have to do. We have to look for and hasten the coming of Christ. Wait with hope. Do not, do not despair. Christ is coming. Wait and look for it. What does look for it mean? Live according to the scripture, live with good conduct, live with godliness, because the day is coming. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells so believe in God's promise and finally make sure you are without spot and blameless look forward to these things be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless It's be diligent about that Like I think that verse in and by itself can change anybody's life be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless be diligent to be found blameless so this is the end of the gospel. At the end, there is the um, another greeting at the end, but basic St. Peter is telling us, These are I'm in my last days, I'm concerned about you. Please, I'm concerned about you. Please do not, please increase your faith. Please grow in your faith at virtues, Keep your faith clear, clean, pure. Do not listen to heresies and wait for the second coming of Christ. That's basically what Christ is teaching us today.
0: Yeah. No, thank you, Sam. That was wonderful. That was uh, very insightful and a great summary of the epistle of the second epistle of Saint Peter. Are there any questions for Sam? I like how you tied it into the incarnation of the Lord. You'll yeah. find. That as we're celebrating and getting ready to celebrate the activity of our Lord, we find that the incarnation, the concept of what Sam describes, uh, as St. Athanasius describes, the divine dilemma, why Christ has to come in the flesh, sanctify our lives in the flesh, and come in our natural world around us, and, and purify this world, and so that we may become like God, right? We have his qualities. Uh, he gives us because he loves us so much, he gives us all of the blessings. Qualities that he has. And St. Peter talks about it, St. Athanasius, many other church fathers talk about it. And this is uh, the concept of us just becoming one with him, becoming just like him in everything we say and do. And our whole lives are like an icon, uh, reflecting the heavenly truths in our own lives. And uh, that's what we all, you know, <laughs> by his mercy and grace. But I, I love that sound. That was great. Um, are there any questions for our? great guest speaker. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thanks again.
1: God Thank be-
0: you. Thanks. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We make us worthy to pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Lord in heaven. The love of God, the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Depart in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you.